Hi, John. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. We had a very successful conference just yesterday. Yeah, it was mind blowing to see all to see all those people there. It was scary and mind blowing. I was running a workshop in the basement, and so I was hearing the talks, and then occasionally I would poke my head up there, and, and it was almost too much uh, for me to handle. But it was super super impressive. It was really fun. I mean. As an early employee of Amplitude, our first event had 70 people, and that was impressive. And we we thought that was a huge accomplishment. And now, years later, this conference had over 2,000 product people. And so, I mean, you're right. It, it was scary just to see that size. Um, and it was cool to kind of see Amplitude grow as a company and kind of what we can do now. But it was also cool to see just the industry. I mean, there weren't events for PMs and product just, what, five years ago? There, there was nothing. There wasn't much. Yeah, you know what was really interesting? I mean, I have the, the data on who attended, right? Is that you did have a core of what I would call pure product people, product managers or VP of product, CPOs, et cetera. But you had a lot of these really interesting overlaps. So you had you know, growth designers or growth engineers or data scientists or product managers of data science you know, functions or platforms, um, engineers, marketing people, growth marketers. So I was talking to someone internally and they said, well, you know, is this, is this the biggest product manager conference or product conference? And I actually made the point that, you know, it might even be more interesting than that. Um, certainly there's big pure product management conferences that I really enjoy. I like mind the product. I like a lot of these, um, you know, big industrial uh, in, industry conference, um, I like these conferences, but I think what was really interesting, it was, it's probably one of the biggest kind of weirdly, oddly cross-functional stuff around product people, um, in addition to just being, you know, product managers. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I totally saw that as well. You know, there are a lot of people who just call themselves growth managers and, you know, there are growth marketing folks and, um, you know, the design team at Amplitude, we did a small little meetup for anybody who signed up as a designer. And so we, we just met up casually in kind of the patio area for lunch. And I met so many designers who are either about to start using Amplitude or have used it and love it. And, you know, we had a lot of great conversations. So I, I definitely see what you mean by the cross-functionalness of it. Um, but all these people kind of consider themselves a part of the product building tribe. Is yeah, that exactly. the thing? No, no, it is totally a thing. And I think that I, I think you you've you've hit the nail on the head that that's something that actually you often don't see at a, a purely design focused conference or a pure product management conference. So I mean I had fun. I was a I was a kid in a candy store. I was a little bit overwhelmed and I had stuff to do during the day, but it was definitely um and it was fun to to meet people that I've you know either met uh, through Twitter or people who listen to the podcast in person. And so that, that was really fun. Yeah. Twitter in real life is very cool. We, we had, you know, two of our guests on this show, Lex Roman, uh, and Jasmine Friedel from Intercom, they were both at the conference. And so it was nice to talk to, uh, Twitter in real life and, 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 <laughs> and, and catch up with these people. So no, it, it was a great time. Um, I, I know Amplitude, we're going to release the videos of it. We did last year. So that'll happen sometime in the future. And we'll, we'll let people know there are some great talks. Um, there, there was one presentation in particular from Adam Nash at Dropbox that, that we were talking about. And he had this particular slide that, um, you know, started a lot of conversation. So on this slide, he, he talked about, you know, knowing your superpower. 
and how every role has their own superpower. Each role does a lot of things, but the superpower is really kind of where they shine and they have to know how to leverage that in the org. Um, and in particular, there was this aspect of you know him describing product, design, engineering. And for design, he said, the power of visualization of possible choices. So he says, every function has a superpower when it comes to decisions. And design is the superpower of visualization of possible choices. So after he posted this, there was actually a bit of a discussion on Twitter. Uh, both Lex and Jasmine, uh, you know, kind of shared their opinions. And, you know, John and I were talking about this and we thought this would be a good discussion topic for the day. Yeah, it was funny because, you know, I was down in the basement. <laughs> I think I was recovering from doing this workshop, this really intense workshop. And, and I heard uh, Adam Nash say that and I said, oh my God, someone is going to get pretty bent out of shape about that. Um, and I, and I mean that in a nice way. I don't, I don't mean not in an unjustified or justified way. I just meant purely that's going to trigger someone, um, and trigger a reaction from someone because I've been around designers enough to know that there's certain kind of topics or certain, uh, insinuations or certain things that always seem to, you know, create a spark, a reaction. Totally. Yeah. I think designers, PMs, engineers, we all have these different triggers, um, and I think it's helpful to kind of call them out and know what they are because it helps you understand, you know, the the overlying stereotypes that bother each of us, but it also helps just have effective conversations because I think we're all human and there are things that just really bug us around, you know, even if people don't mean it in a malicious way, it can make you feel unappreciated or it can make you feel like people don't really understand or value your work. And so it's it's important to understand these triggers for sure. Yeah, I think even, you know, even the word trigger, I think for many people, um, you know, you might say trigger warning, and there's there's a lot connected to that. And and maybe, you know, we could even think like, what are these sparks? You know, what are these in, in, antagonizations or something like that? <laughs> um, but it's interesting when I heard, when I heard those words mentioned, immediately in my mind, I thought about being in the room there when some designer was forced to kind of present the options for someone else to choose. And that right. was an instant image in my head. And that's when I connected to, wow, that is going to bring out some kind of memory for someone of having to be that person. Like, show us three options. Don't do one. Right. Uh, don't do two. Show three. And then, you know, the third one is one you want. You make a terrible one. And then one that's out in left field. <laughs> that's like a you know, running joke if you were ever sort of in, in design. <laughs> and so I, I could tell that someone was going to remember that type of situation. Yeah, I definitely could tell it was triggering as well. For me, I think it's often because uh, I find designers do feel that a lot of the work they put into their mock isn't often recognized. Um, and it's hard to express that work. So, you know, obviously doing the research, uh, doing comparative analysis, understanding how, you know, anything you're designing fits into the overall system. There are ways to express that work but it's hard to kind of see the totality of it. And so once you present the mock or the design, you know, you show these options, um, you know, there's so much work before that option that goes into it that it's not the option itself, but it's everything that's gone into it. So that's, to me, is why I felt it was a trigger. Did, did you pick up on that as well? Yeah, I think that that's exactly um, what happens in that scenario. You know, someone is excited to present these options, but what really they're doing is presenting thinking. Um, you know, right. if you think about what Jared Spool says, you know, design is the rendering of intent. 
what they're actually doing is they're creating a, a conversation piece meant to elicit those dual ideas, rendering and intent. What do we understand about the intent and how is it being rendered and can we continue having a conversation? And so there's a lot of depth to that, right? <laughs> that there's a lot going on to any, you know, product manager or engineer sitting there and they're saying, oh, you know, this is, this is when they're going to show what, what they've got. Now it's time to, to judge it, you know, <laughs> um, to do it. And so I, I've been in that room when that happens and, and seen how difficult it is, you know, in your career, how do you, how do you communicate the thought process, the, the, the intent, how do you communicate what's going on in your head as you try to put something to paper there and get people to respond to it? Oh, it's tough. It's tough. In my career, what I've done is adjust how I present to people based on what they resonate with. Because ultimately, a design review or explaining your work, it's a persuasive exercise. When I say persuasive, I don't mean trying to persuade somebody to your mock-up, but rather you're trying to persuade them based on the data or the feedback you've gotten. And so there are some people, and I had a CEO at a past company who just hated wireframes hated low fidelity mockups. So everything I showed him had to be high fidelity. And that was a bad situation to begin with. Um, but the only way I could cope with that and to kind of show and explore the space is to materialize for him what a user could could have really meant by some feedback, by showing him almost a complete end-to-end -end flow, maybe not a full detailed uh, experience, but at least one complete flow of what that could look like. And that actually helped him not just understand the proposed solution, but actually understand the actual user feedback in kind of the way I was processing it, at least. Um, and then I've been at other orgs where if you show people just the, the high fidelity mockup, they take it very literally. And they're like, well, you know, we'll need to do this and that doesn't follow the design system, et cetera, et cetera. And so for those people, you need to show something much rougher if you're showing something kind of early stage. And so in my career, I've really had to adjust. And I think that's okay because ultimately you're trying to communicate an approach to something, especially early on in a design. And you know you have to change your communication style for almost anyone you speak to, to make sure it resonates. Yeah, I like the two sides of that too, in terms of you need to think about accessibility, right? And, you know, we talk about accessibility in designs, but are you making your um, presentation accessible? And I know that that can be painful for people. And maybe that's what the triggering element of this is all about, right? Like there's a certain hit to professional pride and standards when you feel you need to bend your presentation style, bend your approach too far from what you think should be necessary or should be ideal. And the idea of, you know, you're watching this conference talk and you're seeing this head of product and you can almost visualize this idea that he's saying that, that your superpower is to present him options, right? Um, and, and, and that can be pretty painful. But if we think about, you know, how we can make these conversations about design accessible, and if, if in some cases we can mute our professional pride just to the point to be able to get the conversation going... I think that that's kind of the only option, right? And, and unless you say to people, like, just get out of the room, I've got this and I don't need your feedback, it seems like we're going to always have to make our work accessible and our thought process accessible. 
Absolutely. I think in some scenarios, you need to find the, uh, the middle ground, you need to find areas where you can agree to agree and agree to disagree. And in other situations, it's just an exercise of how you communicate uh, to another. The best analogy I can think of is the work of a chef. If you think of any kind of professional chef, there's so many years of expertise, so much kind of research on things. You know, I think if you look at all those food cooking shows, you know, there's so many of them. I think they've done a great service to explain people the the effort and work and even kind of the raw exercise and muscle you need to put things together. I know I didn't know much about it until I saw so many of those shows. Maybe uh, screen designers and product designers need something similar. Uh, but you know, you can kind of see all the thought that went into the dish. And if you see the judges who are all often also chefs, they're talking about all the hints of flavors and how they work well together. And they're talking about those trade-offs. And you know, they're not simply just saying yes or no, and they're trained to do that. And so that's probably the best example I can give to kind of put yourself in kind of the mind of a designer that, yes, at, at the end of the day, a part of it is visualizing the option. And so, you know, the equivalent for a chef would be, I don't know, plating your dish, right, or, or choosing the ingredients. But that's a part of so much other work designers or chefs do that it, it, it's very triggering when you imply that's the only thing or, or in this case for the superpower, the main thing. Because there's so many main things that, that go into it. Uh, there is another thing for designers that are often triggering relating to engineering is when you think about productivity. I was talking to uh, someone named Elizabeth at the Amplify conference, and we were just going back and forth around this. I think she'd be a great guest for Iterate, so we should have her on here. Uh, but she was talking about how you know sometimes a product leader or an engineering leader can, can look at an org and say, engineers are just so much more productive than designers. And it's hard to kind of compare the two types of productivity. Hmm. Um, you know, designers often finish their work right at the last minute. Um, not because we're procrastinators. Uh, sometimes we are. But it's because, you know, the creative process involves so many ups and downs. There are some days where I can finish up a design in just an, under an hour. And there are some days a similar design can take me eight, nine hours. And, you know... That's not always true, but there are those extremes. And so it's hard to compare productivity. And so that's another triggering thing for me as a designer, especially because I've worn kind of both hats. They're just such different types of work. And that's not to say engineers aren't you know, creative and they're not doing problem solving. They are, but there's different ways to continue to proceed on an engineering task than there are for a design task. Sometimes a full day or two days go by where I have nothing to show materially. Um, you know, and, and it's a lot about just exploration and clipping things. Um, and it's hard to explain to somebody how that's helping me in the process, but it is work. And so that's another triggering thing when people imply, you know, designers kind of just go off and think and ponder and then just come back with designs. Um, you know, that is work as well. I think that this discussion of, of sort of professional triggers. I, I think that any time I see a generalization about a role where it says like the main thing of blank, uh, you know, you're always going to get a, a pushback because no role is that simple, right? And, and you always need to be careful too, because with design, especially if, if you said, you know, visualization, it's almost like saying to an engineer, I'm trying to think of a, 
comparable statement for engineers would be, you know, your, your, your superpower is performance or, you know, your superpower is, is moving quickly or your superpower is, is solving purely technical problems or something, right? You're always going to get a little bit of a pushback, I think, uh, when we typecast people that way, which goes back to our episode on stereotypes. But one, one thing that I think you and I have been talking about is it's one thing to have these stereotypes and it's one thing to be in these environments and literally see the, the, uh, tension level go up through the roof when people make some of these generalizations and trigger people. I was, you know, speaking to a UX researcher and I could see someone in the room say something like, uh, well, you know, your responsibility is to do just enough research. And, and you could tell that, that that phrase just enough, even if it was completely well-meaning, completely, you know, just raise the tension level through the roof. Just enough? You know, who are you to judge what just enough is? Like, don't I judge what just enough is? Uh, you know, what about doing a really good job? Why do I need to do just enough? Just enough for who? Just enough for you? And you could see that running through their head <laughs> in that room. So I don't know. It's something to think about, like just um, these phrases. I don't know. You've done more uh, engineering work. What's a good example for for an engineer, for example? Yeah, sure. I think when I think about engineers, um, I mean, what you just mentioned right now almost triggered me. <laughs> what, what is just enough? Exactly. Uh, so, no, you're, you're spot on. Just the words we use make a difference. They, they can make an impact to somebody. And um, I think we have to think about them. You know, when I think about engineering, I, I think often my personal style of engineering, I cared about. Um, you know, the design aspect of it, I cared about how well polished it was. So I would get triggered when, you know, people implied that engineers only care about the code. And, you know, the typical example where they show, this is what I designed. This is what the engineer built, right? Um, and I, I would get triggered by those things because I cared, but I, I can't speak for all engineers. Yeah. So what I'm hearing there too, is that, you know, any statement that kind of minimizes the toil says that it's not all that hard it's almost a clear signal to you that if you're trying to monitor yourself for these triggering statements in how you collaborate with other people, the first step is, is what you're saying, could it possibly be construed as minimizing their care and concern or limiting their care and concern or uh, putting it in a box? You need to be super aware of that language. A great one for product actually is that, uh, I remember a product leader saying to the product managers that worked for him, he said, you know, we, we are the glue. We're in the middle of everything. And that's a kind of common thing. You know, I hear some people say, you know, product's the middle or they're the glue or something. And they showed a drawing. They showed a visualization. And the funny thing about the visualization, it basically looked like product's only role was to act as the connective tissue between these like super geniuses, <laughs> right? And it was funny because, you know, they're using this kind of well-worn line and it's the glue or the white space dweller or the, you know, the messy middle of the thing. And again, now in retrospect, okay, it make perfect sense that that might rub people the wrong way because you're, you know, you're just this, you know, you are, you're in the middle of all these creative people, uh, but now in retrospect, it makes sense that that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. So that's an even example for product. 
Yeah, there are tons of these. I, I wish there was almost a book about it <laughs> that would just go through. Because I know, like like you were saying, I'm sure I'm I'm guilty of some of these things as well. I, I like to think I'm not, but I'm sure I, I fall into these traps as well. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, just to summarize what we're talking about, it's really just about understanding that that language does matter and understanding that we all have kind of insecurities and and these triggers that can really affect a conversation can really affect how people feel valued. Um, and there's so many for different people here, are just, you know, two examples for designers, and that's a, you know, one for product. Um, but th- there are others, and these things do matter. And, you know, I, a lot of these speakers that, that go to these conferences, I mean, they're not going to be able to talk about this nuance, because then there'd be a six, seven hour presentation. Uh, <laughs> But especially as leaders, their words do matter as well. And I think, you know, we should have these discussions. One final thought on that too, you know, this will have a big impact how you work individually with people on your team, if you can master these things. But I've noticed that these things can create these persistent loops in community discussions for a decade. And so it's not just even on the individual level, like what you do on the individual level can kick off a chain reaction in terms of the whole product community. (laughs) So there's things around like engineers have been known to say in the agile community, something like, well, you know, the role of UX on the team is actually to spread the ability to design on the team. And at the end of the day, you, you need an engineer there to do that. So just think about everything you said at the end of the day, you need me and um, they, there's no specialization in that role. You know, they, they they should just be there to kind of spread their skills for everyone else, minimizing comment. That one statement, which has been persisting and rolling around in these circular debates for maybe a decade or more, has kind of poisoned a relationship often with design and, and engineering and something. And so it's not just these one-to-one or small team communications can actually have a huge impact. Totally. Absolutely. Um, we're going to keep this episode short. We're both pretty exhausted after Amplify. Um, but please reach out, um, you know, leave us a review on iTunes. Tell us what you want to hear more about. Um, I know I don't have enough gas in the tank for something funny. What I just actually realized is we actually did kind of a fun exercise at the end with uh, with the episode with Dylan about all these triggers. So if you actually want to hear some more triggers, oh, that's awesome. that's right. do you remember? We Yeah, we went through all these things that, that have triggered us in the past. And so, um, there are lots of them and, you know, hopefully we can have this discussion of, you know, what is out of bounds and what's, what's acceptable, you know, as, as we move forward as a product community. Can I say product tribe? Is that a thing? Is that too weird? Yeah, actually. No, no. Yeah. Product tribe is good. I, I mean, I, I've used yeah. product folk. I've used product nerds. <laughs> I like that. I, I try anything. I, I try anything because this idea that product equals product management versus product as a circle, you know, around product management, design, data science, mm. marketing and everything, mm-hmm. I think is really important. And and again, that's even right. super marginalizing, right? You right. describe, you know, oh, the product team is here, meaning just product managers. So words. Yeah, matter. exactly. That's good. Yes. Yeah, so Word. product folk, product tribe is good. Words matter, folks. All right. Well, I guess until next week. All right. See you, John. All right. Bye, Tark.